This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. Welcome back to All the Sins of Wisconsin. I am Fallon and I'm here with Mims. We're meeting you on Zoom today again. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, Thanks for being here. I know that you're still in recovery, so um, we're doing the best we can here. (laughs) Bouncing back quickly this time. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you already had... you went through it the first time, maybe you didn't have a lot of the antibodies yet, and now that you do, it's probably like helping you, maybe? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> okay. All right, you got some news? Yeah, I do. So, there's some good news, kind of, in the Roe versus Wade tragedy that took place. Um, so, it's joining forces with Illinois help patients travel safely to have abortion procedures. Um, so abortion is still legal in Illinois. However, in Wisconsin, doctors have almost put abortions like on hold until the court system deter- determines whether or not to officially ban abortion practices. Um, yeah. So that not doing or practicing much right now. And then Illinois has been kind of like an oasis for procedures, for this type of procedure, and has been having an incredible increase in patients. So, uh, to the high demand, Wisconsin um, nurses and doctors have been going down to Illinois and helping out, and you know, um, basically, because you know, there's more um, people going than there are. So, um, yeah. With it's not just Wisconsin either. There's other states surrounding Illinois that have banned it as well. Yeah. So, um, Illinois, you keep doing uh, great things down there. And Wisconsin, um, even though that we're kind of not knowing what we're doing, um, I'm really proud of the doctors that are still going down there and helping. Um, yeah. That's really awesome. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Our Wisconsin lawmakers, some some of our Wisconsin lawmakers are trying to change the law that's on the books currently because people don't know, it's basically up to states now. So our state can change the laws and make it legal. They can make it legal just across the board or for certain reasons or whatever. And they have been working on that. So we'll have to see if they can get Republican support in order to do so. Some people like my enemy, Robin Voss, he just, mm-hmm. probably doesn't know he's my enemy, but he is. He <laughs> is always fighting everything that I want to see happen. <laughs> so right, yeah. yeah. So there's some positivity in this. A lot of people are coming together and in, in this uh, crisis, and that's always great to see. Yeah, and the thing is, is that this was always going to happen at some point in time because of the way that it was 
overturned previously. So now states got to do their job and fix it. Yeah. Yeah. And did you also hear about how we're getting rid of daylight savings time? I've heard speculation about that since 2020. Yeah. Um, Are we just going to stay in daylight savings time or we're not going to have daylight savings time? Not going to all. And apparently this already happened where people were like, oh, we shouldn't have this anymore. So then we pass where it's not going to be a thing. And then the same people that were like, we shouldn't have this were like, oh, it's messing up like my whole like sleep schedule now not having it so then we brought it back and I'm like that is like as American as it gets you know bitch about one thing and then not like it and then bitch about it enough and then it goes back to the way it originally was supposed to be well there's some states like I think in Michigan or Indiana I don't know one of those states Mm -hmm. where they have different counties don't practice they like say I don't, I don't understand why. This is why time is a man-made construct for the people that don't know time is not real. Yeah. Yeah. So that was very interesting. Um, Anything else that you want to bring up before we just get to it? No, let's get to it. Let's do it. All right. Today I am discussing the Jalopy Jungle Murders. Okay. Wow. I have not. All right. My sources today are the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel Online, SheboyganPress.com, and the DeckPodcast.com. So Eddie and Francis Szauskas, that's a hard one to say, so I'm going to be calling them Eddie and Francis for the rest of the episode, were murdered in their barn at their home located um, on their salvage yard in the town of Sheboygan in 1988. At the time, Eddie was 75 and Francis was 73. The couple was described as well-liked by the community and private people. They ran a successful salvage yard, which they called Eddie's Jalopy Jungle. And they were known to help out people in the community any way they could. If you had a problem with your car and nobody else would help you, they cut deals with people, figured things out for people, you know, really tried to be there for everyone the best way that they could. That's really sweet. Yeah. The couple never had any children, but they did have a large extended family, nieces, nephews, sisters, and brothers. So, and a lot of friends since they were really well liked. But on the morning of November 30th, 1988, Herbert Baumgart, a 30-year part-time employee of the couple, arrived at work and did not find the couple in their home. So he went out to search for them. Like, well, where did they go? And he soon found both of their bodies in the barn. And it was clear to him that they were deceased, and he immediately went and called for help. When authorities arrived, they were shocked at the scene as Sheboygan had very few murders back then, or even now, really, Sheboygan isn't like a high murder zone, Wisconsin. Right. So they began contacting friends and relatives to determine who the couple had talked to last, who they had seen last, like when was their last known whereabouts or sighting by anybody. And they found out that the last time anyone saw Eddie alive was at 12.30 p.m. the previous day. 
when one of his friends saw him. And Francis had been on the phone the previous day, but nobody had heard from them on the day that they were found. And people had been trying to get in touch with them, but they didn't want to be alarmists and be like, well, they didn't answer the phone one time, so I need to call the police or something. They're just like, oh, maybe they got busy or they didn't have the phone while they were walking around the yard because there's no cell phones in 1988, no cordless phones. You're still wired to the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So nobody thought anything of it until this happened. And then they're like, oh, yeah, she wasn't answering the phone all day yesterday mm-hmm. and authorities were unable to determine the immediate cause of death for Eddie or Francis so they had to wait for the autopsy results to come back and Eddie's autopsy showed he suffered numerous blunt force injuries to his head which eventually caused catastrophic brain damage he had skull fractures that was a very gruesome beating that he endured right and Francis's autopsy was originally inconclusive. Okay. They couldn't, determine, they couldn't determine how she died. According to reports, she could have been strangled or died from something like the fright of seeing her husband murdered. Although the same report said that she did not die from a heart attack. So it uh, makes sense. No, no. No, makes no sense. No. Eventually, after some time had passed, uh, an autopsy would determine that she did, in fact, die from strangulation. But they thought it was odd that there was no, like, outside marks of strangulation, which I don't know if people realize. You can get strangled and not have bruises on your neck. Yeah. Um, maybe they, that person doesn't bruise easily. Maybe... Um, well, I was thinking about suffocation for a second, um, like getting the, the pillows stuffed on your face, but that's not strangulation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think if you break the right little bone in your neck, you know, you get our strangles of death. <laughs> Reaching for your neck now. I know. <laughs> Grab my neck. And I'm like, I don't want that to happen to me. No. Us humans are fragile when we think about it. And I'm like, every any little thing could really just like ruin us. So. <laughs> Yeah, we are. We're a mess. (laughs) We are. Yeah. After the autopsy results came back, then police needed to figure out the theory as to, like, how the murder took place. So the first theory was that Frances had been restrained while Eddie was being beaten, and then she was screaming at the sight of her husband being killed, so she was screaming, so they strangled her to keep her quiet. It sounds pretty viable to me. It does, yeah. Authorities then needed a lead, a motive, or something to get the case going. So then they got their first big lead. A teenage boy had been bragging at parties about how he was responsible for the murders. Police transfixed on this theory until one day they realized that the boy had been telling everyone that he shot the couple, and the couple was not shot. Oh, my God. I know. It's it's crazy to me that people do this. Me too. Me too. Never in my life, I think. I'm just going to like totally own this double homicide and just claim that I did that because of, for whatever reason, it doesn't make sense to me why you would do that. It doesn't make any sense at all. 
I wouldn't confess to an actual murder if I did it. Let <laughs> alone an imaginary. Yes, yeah. Oh my God. But when he first came out with his story, the police hadn't um, released the cause of death because, you know, Francis's autopsy took a long time. So they didn't tell anyone what had happened. Nobody knew that they didn't get shot. So he assumed, oh, yeah, I just just made up the story like, oh, yeah, I went over there and shot those old people. You should fear me kind of attitude. Oh, yeah. And I love when police don't release that so that when this type of thing happens which it does almost all all the time um oh facts you know and the people the person or people that do do something or are involved um, they will be able to be distinguished and rather than all these other people that are just fucking trying to be tough right exactly so then after the, that theory was eliminated, the police needed to start over from scratch with a new suspect. Mm-hmm. So their next theory was that the motive was robbery. The salvage business was almost exclusively a cash business in the 80s. And even today, salvage businesses are still largely cash-based, especially in like more rural areas. Yeah, I can see that. And many people in the community believed the couple had a lot of money and even said that Eddie was known to walk around town with a large amount of cash. The couple had also thought, was thought to have hidden money around their property. Okay. So this led authorities to speculate that the perpetrator was looking for the money and got angry when they didn't find it. And then they probably tried to get Eddie to tell them where the money was. And then when he didn't, they just killed them. Right. Yeah. So to me, that makes me believe that either a it's somebody very close or since this is a, a small town that it is somebody from the community that is that knows about it or has heard about it from somebody directly from like the family or friends, whatever. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it's somebody from the community, which is scary to think that they just kill people and then they just stay there like, oh, yeah. You could be at the grocery store and they just killed your neighbors and you don't even know. How many, yeah, how many times do you go like on a walk and look into a house and think like, I wonder if that's like a murder or is that just me? No, I do that too. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Especially if I see something that seems a little off, like, that's weird. Yeah, there is a house. What kind of crimes they commit. Yeah. There is a house, I'm not going to say where, um, but here in the valley. And there is a whole bunch of um, like, like chopped off Barbie heads on like, oh, spike yeah. in on like the, uh, what's it called? Like the gate around the house. Yeah. Um, just like skeletons, like the fake skeletons, like on, on the lawn, everything's like completely littered. And I'm like, that's how your outside looks like. I don't want to know what goes on inside, you know? <laughs> no, I kind of do want to know what goes on. <laughs> you run for so. <laughs> I do. I have a problem. <laughs> so this, their theory actually led them to a suspect. The police know his name, but they have not publicly named him. And this suspect was known to rob numerous businesses in the Sheboygan area. 
He's kind of like a robbery legend. <laughs> he, was even, he was even reported to have walked into businesses in the evening and just walked out with safes full of money. Like, can you apprehend this man at some point or like, that's not a thing? Yeah, at some point he'll get apprehended. <laughs> <laughs> so police were pretty sure that this lead would go somewhere. They interviewed him and many of his known associates, even giving them all lie detector tests. Unfortunately, if there was a record of the results of the lie detector test, they have since been misplaced. So they said people in the 90s did a bad job of taking notes. So, um, um, yeah. Oh, I don't know what else to say about that. Okay. No, I have, yeah, no comment. <laughs> no, no comment. The police, or the police, the suspect was spoken to by federal agents on his deathbed, however when he was in prison mm -hmm. so he did eventually get caught for something mm -hmm. and he supposedly confessed to the murders oh However, wow as things seem to go in this case sheboygan county was not notified about this until years later like instead of calling and being like hey we this guy's about to die and right. he just confessed to a murder that involved your police department they had sent over a fax which was never fully received and it just the current detectives that are on the case were going through everything. Like, let's start at the beginning and go through everything. And they found this fax. You know, that's so, something to put the phone for, in my opinion. Like, that's, yeah. that's some serious information that could allow the, the person uh, or the investigators to close that and work on something else, you know? Yeah. You would think so. But then when the when the current detectives began looking into his confession, they found that he had discussed placing the couple in the closet, which did not happen in this case, but it did happen in a different robbery that didn't lead to death. So they think that it was that the feds were confusing a different crime or the suspect was confusing a different crime with this crime. Yeah, that sounds like it. Yeah. And then there's another theory, which according to relatives and authorities that this theory doesn't hold any weight, but I wanted to bring it up anyways, because if you look into it, you'll see this theory. And that theory was that Eddie and Francis were murdered because Eddie did not want to sell his property and the county wanted to annex the property. They were trying to split it up. And like some was in one county now and some is in another county. And Eddie was not going for it at all. Right. So people believe like the city or county apparently had something to do with his murder. Yeah, no. He said he would never agree to it. But people close to him said that his discussions with the, with the county or local people regarding the annexing were peaceful. And they don't think that murder would have happened in order to make this deal occur however right. since they died the land has been annexed like right after they died so that's what makes people think that i think so yeah. i just want to bring that part up yeah authorities say hundreds of people have been interviewed and numerous leads have been followed but the leads haven't went anywhere a detective working on the case now did say that he knows that people involved talked about the crime. 
However, the direct sources of the information have never come forward. Like whoever the group of people were, or pair of people, so it was at least two people, I believe. So at least those two people have told other people and those other people have came to the police. But nobody that was actually there has spoken to the police. So they just have a lot of hearsay right now. I'm yeah, pretty so sure the police know who did it, but they don't have any evidence. Mm. That's so frustrating. Yeah, because somehow they said they found no foreign DNA and no fingerprints. So at this time, solving the case is really going to have to rely on old-fashioned detective work or maybe a confession from someone involved or maybe somebody that's closer to the people who did the crime. Like the detective side, the people that are involved in this case are getting older and older. And as you get older, these things start to weigh on your conscience more. Yeah. You're going to die and you might have to go see Jesus or whoever you believe in and you yeah. might want to get this off your chest first so you don't go straight to hell. <laughs> yeah. Wherever you go in your Or world. turn into something awful like anal beads or something. Like you want to come back as like, I don't know. I don't even know what I would want to come back as. Just something. Oh, like a cup. No, because I don't want to be eaten. I was going to say a cupcake, but I don't know. That's you tricky. Would, you wouldn't be around very long if you came back as a cupcake. I know. So that's why, you know, I next that so I don't know but I wouldn't want to be anything terrible so think about that something terrible you might come back as anal beads or uh a rat you know rats get the short end of the sick often so yeah definitely I have have a bunch of ridiculous things to say now anyways (laughs) So tips are still coming in on the case somehow, despite the length of time that's passed. And the detectives did say that anytime any type of media coverage or discussion about the case occurs, it reminds people that the case is still open and being investigated, which brings in a flurry of new leads, which is what we always talk about. Like, let's talk about this stuff, because when we talk about it and more people talk about it, then things start to come up. Yeah. So detectives validated that point for us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, detectives. Thank you. It seems like the ones that are on the case right now are very um, hardworking, dedicated to the case. So that's good to see. Yeah, love to hear. Throw their notes in the trash or whatever you did with your notes in the 90s. Right, like, fuck these notes. Who needs them? (laughs) They were probably on a hard disk somewhere. Oh my gosh, yeah. Anyone with information about this case is encouraged to call the Sheboygan County Sheriff's Department and their phone number is 920-459-3111. And if you want to remain anonymous, you can always just go on the Crime Stoppers tip line. You can text, email, call, whatever you need to do. Right. And that is the Jalopy Jungle Murders. Good job. Great job. And you leave us... Um, unsolved (laughs) always yeah okay are you ready I don't know are you are you mentally prepared do you have the mental capacity to take on the bone breaker oh I don't know yeah it sounds painful 
it's it's gnarly. So for anybody uh, listening to my part now, please um, know that this is going to be um, gruesome. It's going to be heavy and it's going to be dark. So here we go. On July 29, 1995, 13 year old, I love that name, um, but he went by Thad Philip was sleeping on the couch in his new home in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Uh, his family literally just moved in um, into their new home and they would soon be thrown into one awful new reality. So basically, um, somebody broke into the home, picked up Thad off of the couch and he didn't fight it because he thought it was one of his parents bringing him from the couch to his bed as he just fell yeah. asleep. Um, so he didn't fight it. He didn't really, you know, fully wake up. He just let it happen. Um, however, he did end up kind of opening his eyes and realizing that he wasn't even inside the house anymore. He was outside with an unknown teenage boy. Um, so very strange. So very in strange. a a weird transition the boy asked him to just go run to his house with him um and so dad was like uh, you know I'm not really sure what's happening maybe I'm I was doing something with this guy and I'm just you know I I'm just so sleepy and disoriented so he ended up just following him and the unknown boy then led him to his home and when they walked in uh the boy introduced Thad to his 17-year-old brother, Joe, and said he was going to soon throw a party with, um, you know, a whole bunch of people were going to come over. He rattled off a few names that Thad uh, knew that he was friends with and that would later join um, as they were all invited to the party. And while they were waiting for people, he said, let's go upstairs and look at my cool model cars. So very strange of events happening here. Yeah. So Thad followed unaware that he was a victim of kidnapping and the kidnapper was uh, later dubbed as the bone breaker. So who he was is Joseph Clark and um, he introduced himself and was very cordial at the beginning. And then all of a sudden a different persona came out. As soon as he uh, went into the bedroom with Thad, he grabbed Thad and threw him on the dirty bed and jumped on him and grabbed him by the ankles and then uh, began to twist Thad's foot around his leg until the bone above his ankle snapped and splintered. Um, by some feet of strength, Thad jumped up and ran downstairs in an effort to flee for his life. Unfortunately, due to the leg injury he had sustained, uh, Joseph caught him and dragged him back and a whole new realm of hell was going to, or of hell uh, was going to happen. So while dragging him back, um, Joseph was punching him, kicking him and eventually subdued him until he no longer was able to fight back. And all Thad could feel at this point was the friction in his broken leg. Um, and he think he didn't even think of the pain at that point. Um, it was just that weird sensation. 
else. Um, so then Joseph threw Thad on the couch in the living room and Thad pleaded for him for his life. Um, he wanted to be freed. He said he wouldn't tell anybody, just anything that he could say to get himself out of this situation. And Joseph was kind of, you know, not giving a fuck. And he said, well, nobody's going to believe you anyways, if you were to be let go. And then they kind of laughed it off. He also told Thad that he had done something like this before and that he loved it. So leaving Thad to feel hopeless and scared for his life, um, as anybody else would. Uh, this was just the beginning of Thad's captivity. Uh, Joseph would alternate from beating, breaking, and attacking Thad to trying to kindle an intimate friendship, which didn't make much sense to me. He would carry Thad to the disgusting couch and make him watch movies together. Um, and he would also talk about things like his family, his likes, his dislikes, his car, as if they were just like having a friendly hangout. Um, so strange. Right. This whole thing, I was like, how is this an actual event that happened? You know? Yeah. Um, also, Joseph would often tend to wounds of Thad by taking white socks and wrapping them around Thad's broken legs until they became like thick paddings of fabric. And then one time he gave Thad a pair of leg braces so that he could try to walk. So he would basically break him down and then try to build him back up as if like all of his rage was unleashed. And then once his rage was no longer there, it, everything was completely fine. Uh, interesting enough, Joseph lived with his brother and his girlfriend, who at one point was at the front door with Joseph while Thad just laid half conscious on the ground, like she didn't care. At this time, uh, as time went on, it soon became clear that Thad was there only for one reason, and that was to be Joseph's personal punching bag. In one case, Joseph's car wouldn't start, so he twisted Thad's legs until they splintered then broke the boy's knees and even jumped on his chest just to, you know, create more damage. Uh, then Thad would try to break, or I'm sorry, fight back or escape. Um, but then the tortured only intensified. So Joseph escalated the torture as a form of punishment so he wouldn't do it again. And like a form of control, I'm assuming. Yeah. He would push a pillow over Thad's and stuff like him beat him like a wild animal and just bring him to the brink of losing consciousness. Uh, Thad, although beaten so badly, attempted to escape multiple times. And even though he was only 18 and 90 pounds, he still, with all of his might, fought very hard. Even after being down, you know, he would still fight back. He would still try to get up and try to, you know, like remove himself. And he didn't give up. Uh, he oftentimes away and managed to stairs before the next attack, even with pool, a blood pooling in his body from internal injuries, having his legs broken in numerous places and enduring days without food that stayed fucking strong. That's crazy. He attempted three during his capture and never lost hope. At one point when Joseph went to see 
friends, Thad would be left alone in the bedroom closet upstairs. Uh, Joseph assumed that Thad wouldn't manage to open the closet or get out of the bedroom due to his injury. So he didn't worry about leaving him unattended. Um, yeah. but, but Thad being the badass that he is, uh, made it down a flight of stairs with broken legs and managed to call for help that had to, Thad had to physically throw himself down a flight of stairs to get down because he couldn't quite lift his legs. Then he crawled using only his hands and arms. While he crawled, he would lose consciousness and pass out on the floor for an unknown amount of times. Finally, he managed to find a phone, pull it down to him from the wall, dialed 911. He told the police where he was and what had happened, and the police believed him and sent officers to the residence. And they finally saved that from Joseph Clark. And Joseph held that hostage for approximately 43 hours. When he was finally rescued, Thad was in a life-threatening condition. Thad's feet were so twisted and his skin was like rubber, basically. I've never heard of such a thing until now. And for our posts that we post on Instagram, I'm going to keep the images to a minimum. I did go and look at the condition that he was found in, and it is pretty gruesome. Um, so. It, you know, this is a, a gruesome uh, episode. So if you don't want to see that, this is just your warning. Um, and his toes were pointing the wrong way as well because of how twisted his body was at this point. His thighs had snapped, his ribs were bruised and broken, and his arms had been bent and twisted and extreme internal bleeding was also happening. He of course needed extensive medical treatment and required many surgeries for over several years. Um, so I think I'm gonna leave it at that and I'm going to continue for next week just because we're gonna go into um, the trial and actually an additional mini story within the story too. Okay. So we'll be back with you guys next week. We love you. We love you. Bye. Bye. All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com episodes of all the sins of wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts and don't Don't forget forget, we we love you. you